Uh, thank you for coming. I'm Bill Gleason. I'm the acting director of the program in American Studies. And be, on behalf of the program and also our co-sponsors, the Center for African American Studies and the Department of History, I'd like, you, like to welcome you to this exciting event. Uh, it's a delight to be able to have Professor Matthew Fry Jacobson here today. I suspect that for many of you, he needs little or no introduction. And as a result, I'll make my own remarks rather brief so that we can turn the podium over to him as quickly as possible. Simply put, Jacobson is one of the most important and influential historians of American race, politics, and culture of the past two decades. The back of the event flyer that we have today, he came in and picked one up um, on the back. There's a bare bones description of uh, Jacobson's career. If you didn't get one, they're available on your way out. Um, and that bare bones stories tells us that he's a professor of American studies, African American studies, and history at Yale University, where he's currently also chair of the Department of American Studies. But the deeper story goes beyond a mere listing of his affiliations and publications. What this outline doesn't describe are the myriad ways in which his five books, but also his classroom teaching, his dissertation advising, and his public scholarship have profoundly shaped and continue to shape our historical understanding of late 19th 20th, and now 21st century American citizenship, immigration, imperialism, race, ethnicity, civil rights, and politics. The awards for his work have been plentiful, including the John Hope Franklin and Ralph Bunch Prizes for Jacobson's second book, Whiteness of a Different Color, European Immigrants and the Alchemy of Race, as well as the Gustavus Myers Outstanding Book Award for Jacobson's most recent volume, Roots II, White Ethnic Revival in Post-Civil Rights America. The project Jacobson will discuss today is deeply connected to his prior work, but also brings it and us into a different register, into a visual, sonic, and pedagogical archive of our contemporary moment a moment characterized, Jacobson has noted, by a striking combination of hope and danger. Situated at the provocative intersection of still photography, oral history, and the digital humanities, the Historian's Eye website offers us new ways of thinking about the world in which we live today and also imagine for tomorrow. I can imagine no better guide, or perhaps the right term is curator, for this moment, or this site, than our guest, Matthew Fry Jacobson. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill, for uh, the invitation to come and for that lovely introduction, after which I feel I can only say, don't get too excited. Uh, this is experimental work, um, still experimental work, although I'm about a year, well, three years into the experiment, one year into having published the experiment, and I'm just beginning to feel ready to call it a successful experiment, but it is still an experiment. Um, today, I'm going to do a couple of things. I am going to, first of all, just walk you through the architecture of the website. This project is envisioned someday to be a, an installation. I would like it to be a traveling installation. At some point, it will probably also be a book. 
Uh, but the first stop is the website. And I'm just going to walk you through the architecture so you can get a sense of the project and its scope and its intent uh, and the shape of it. And then I'll, I'll take that down and switch over to a, a slideshow, and we'll just talk about some of the, some of the photographs. Uh, this is a project that began on Inauguration Day, actually, and it started as a project that I thought would simply be about Inauguration Day, trying to capture in photographs and interviews uh, the historic portent of, of the Obama inauguration. It grew from there, uh, and in ways that uh, I think I can best describe simply by reading you the, uh, the mission statement that is posted on the website. So this is actually the only reading I'm going to be doing. Um, so forgive this, but it'll just take a, a minute or two just to, to kind of set this up. Uh, this, it begins with, with an epigraph from Barack Obama himself in the inaugural address. Uh, the time has come to reaffirm our enduring spirit, to choose our better history, to carry forward that precious gift, that noble idea, passed on from generation to generation, the God-given promise that all are equal, all are free, and all deserve a chance to pursue their full measure of happiness. Beginning as a modest effort in early 2009 to capture the historic moment of our first black president's inauguration in photographs and interviews, the Our Better History Project and the Historian's Eye website have evolved into an expansive collection of some, actually this is dated, it's 2,500 photographs now, and an audio archive addressing Obama's first term in office, the 08 economic collapse and its fallout, two wars, now three, the, the raucous politics of health care reform, the emergence of a new right-wing uh, formation in opposition to Obama, uh, the politics of immigration, Wall Street reform, street protests of every stripe, the BP oil spill, uh, and the seeming escalation of anti-Muslim sentiment nationwide, and now I would also add the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. Uh, interviewees narrate and reflect upon their own personal histories as well, a dimension of the archive that now spans many decades and touches five continents. Adopting its title from a passage in Obama's inaugural address, the project seeks to trace the fate of our better history as the nation faces unprecedented challenges with a president at the helm who is fully inspirational to some, palpably unnerving to others. In addition to catching this moment like a firefly in a mason jar, the project seeks to encourage a new relationship to history itself, a mental habit of apprehending the past in the present and history in the making. Skipping down to the end. The momentum of our culture encourages very short memory and very quick judgment. We take our public discourse mostly in sound bites, and hence things that predate the latest news cycle are most often crowded out of our consideration. Historian's Eye asks you to slow down, to look and to listen, to pay close attention and to notice, to entertain a variety of perspectives, to ask varied questions, to think about the current moment as possessing a deep history, and also to think of it itself, as it, think of it as itself historical, futurity's history. Above all, historian's eye asks you to pitch in and to talk back. And indeed, there's a wiki aspect of this I'll show you uh, where you can participate by submitting materials of your own. The, the guiding question is as simple as, you know, what does this historic moment look like where you live? And you can define the question and the answer as you like and submit materials. And at this point, hundreds of people have. It's really gotten traction, actually, just in the last couple of months. Uh, the Occupy movement is actually precisely the, de the demographic that a project like this seems to have been built for. Um, so let me just walk you through the architecture so you can get a sense of, of how the website uh, is, is laid out. 
Uh, for some peculiarity in the interface here, I can't get the entire site um, on one screen, so I'm going to have to move around a little bit. Um, your results may vary, but at home, the chances are that, that the, the image will actually fit on, on your screen. So now, across the bottom, there are several galleries, each one of these uh, devoted to uh, a different theme. The idea here is that the, the archive is completely nonlinear. You can navigate your way through the materials as you like from one place to another, from images to voices, and back again. Uh, the places archive... Uh, simply notes the, the various places where materials come from. Uh, each one of these galleries, as you see here, opens up onto um, several other photographs. In this case, in the places gallery, each one opens into a place, and each one of those places opens into a, a further gallery of, in some cases, hundreds of, of photographs. The second gallery is devoted to Obama himself. Let's see if I can get this to show Here's a very fetching painting of Obama. This is in the kitchen of a, uh, a barbecue joint in Oakland. Um, since I started uh, you know, with the Obama inauguration, Obama has really in some ways been at the center of this project, even as it's grown far, far beyond uh, just him and his presidency. But um, I remain interested in the iconography surrounding Obama. I'm going to talk about that in much, in much more detail later on. Uh, immigration. Uh, I am an immigration historian, and immigration uh, debates have, have risen and fallen over the last three decades, um, spiking fevers occasionally. Uh, the, the present debate has grown, I think, particularly heated because of the presence of an African American in the White House. I'll say more about that later on as well. But it's also become a, a, a very difficult and complicated, hopeful uh, but complex moment in immigration debates because in the past five years, uh, unlike really any other time in American history, there has been such a vocal and present and, and publicly uh, speaking out pro-immigrant uh, coalition uh, consisting largely of, of immigrants themselves and their children, but also their, their advocates. The People Gallery is simply devoted to portraiture of, you might say, people in history in various ways. This is a picture taken at a pro-immigrant uh, rights rally in New York a few years ago. Um, this really started, the, the reason for this gallery, is it began on Inauguration Day itself. When I went to the mall in D.C. expecting that, uh, as a photographer, the thing to capture would be the scale. What does it look like when two million or so people descend on the mall in Washington, D.C.? Uh, I was working with another photographer that day, uh, a photographer named Renee Athey. We were kind um, of a team, but working independently. And we both came to the same realization over the course of the day, which was to really capture the day, you had to forget about the scale. To capture the day, you had to look at individual faces and, and the kind of, of, of reverence and power of the moment registered on individual faces in a way that, that um, the scene itself, the, the multitudes, the throngs, uh, did no justice at all to. It was only much later that I realized that Dorothea Lange, the great uh, documentary photographer of the 30s, started out as a studio photographer and, and considered herself a portrait photographer. Uh, and if you think about it, the, the famous, the most famous photographs of hers that we still remember are basically portraits. Uh, so this, this is kind of to, to borrow inspiration uh, from, from uh, photographers like Lang, but also to follow up on my own observations about, 
about individuality and what it expresses uh, about history and in history. The gallery called Space Available is devoted to exactly what it sounds like, uh, the the acres and acres and acres of abandoned, uh, mostly commercial space, also office space, uh, in virtually any city or town you go to. And the idea for this came out of one of the, one of the interviews. I was interviewing an, uh, an unemployed office worker in Manhattan, and she was talking about the loneliness of being unemployed in, at the time, 2009. And she was saying, you know, you look back on the 30s, and there, you, see, you, know, you see the bread lines. You see like, all of these public, very public, very huge, large-scale uh, markers of desperation, uh, destitution, she said, in 2009, that's not the case at all. The people who are really hurting are with their own computers, either filing for aid or filing for jobs or whatever it is that they're doing, but it's an isolating, atomized, hidden, largely, experience. And she said to me, the only really public marker uh, that expresses the, the gravity of the situation and also the scale of our desperation uh, at the moment, the scale of the dis- distress, um, are the, the space-available signs that you see everywhere you go. And she was talking about Manhattan, but I started tracking on it. The minute she said that, I understood the import of what she was saying, and I've devoted a gallery to it. And this gallery has literally thousands of images just to, just to document the fact of what has become the kind of normal of our built environment and the kind of public space or civic space of, of our cities and towns. It's a gallery devoted to other aspects of the... Uh, I can't, well, you can see it there on the thumbnail. Other aspects of the recession, whether it's in portraits or people or, or uh, signage or, or whatever is the case. Uh, a gallery devoted to protests of, of every sort. Uh, a gallery devoted to the various people that I've interviewed, portraits of them. Uh, the person you're looking at here is Daisy Khan, the, um, the co-founder of the very controversial Islamic Center in downtown New York. And then there's finally a, uh, a gallery devoted to what I've just called signage. Some of it is graffiti, some of it is commercial signage, some of it is bumper stickers, uh, some of it is just signs that for whatever reason people posted in their windows um, just to say something to the world. And I think it's, once you start noticing it, I think it's a very underappreciated and kind of fascinating mode of public discourse that's ongoing, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Some of it is very interesting. Some of it is wise. Some of it is clever. Some of it is very disturbing. Uh, but I think it's, it's important in its way uh, as a feature of the cultural landscape. Then going across the top... Uh, There are different tabs here, including transcripts of interviews. We don't have all of them posted yet, um, but for each one, for example, you can can pick an interviewee and go to the transcript, uh, and there is the written record of the interview uh, running into pages and pages uh, of material. We're working. The the technology exists. We don't have it in place yet, but eventually we'll have it so that you could actually click on a paragraph, and it would take you right to that spot in in the audio uh, in the audio archive. Uh, there's a video tab here. This is really just a placeholder. I have a couple of things there, but this is really thinking ahead to students who, who I'm hoping will get involved in submitting materials, and I'm thinking that video might be their, their chosen medium. Then the audio tab contains um, both raw uh, interview transcripts. It runs up to 70 hours now. Interviews with hedge fund managers, investment bankers, politicians, 
the unemployed office worker I mentioned, a carpenter, union, uh, union workers, uh, and, and uh, activists, community organizers, uh, office workers, just a full range, really kind of taking, um, taking my cue from uh, someone like Studs Terkel and just really trying to get a spectrum. Again, uh, asking them about their own their own histories, but also about what the world looks like to them. There's a spot for courses, which uh, I hope eventually will be a wiki on uh, not only work that students have done, uh, but ideas that teachers at various levels have had about how to use the archive or how to teach it. And then finally, uh, the thing that I think is most important is the participate pad, uh, gallery that not only has uh, directions for how to submit materials, but also has entire galleries and tons of material that various people have submitted. So there's a gallery devoted to the Tea Party that was done by an ethnographer at NYU. There are a couple of more in the works. There's a team at UC Berkeley working on the Occupy movement out there and the student movement. Uh, There's a team at NYU working on uh, Zuccotti Park and the Occupy movement there. Um, Anne McClintock at uh, University of Wisconsin is working on, on a gallery devoted to everything that's gone on in Wisconsin, starting with the, the protests last winter and running through uh, the, the recall efforts now. And then there are just individual, uh, individual submissions, pictures of all sorts that people have, have sent in. And it's gotten just recently has come to the point where almost every day I'm getting something from someone who... I don't know. This is one of my favorites. This came in about a week ago. This is the Occupy Daegu Korea movement. <laughs> Seemingly uh, a kind of Teach for America type, but teaching in Korea. Uh, here he is with his students. This person is unknown to me, but somehow heard about the, the website and uh, posed this picture. Uh, this, I think, is the most, uh, it's the, the most promising and most important part of, of the project, because from the outset, although I've been very happily doing uh, the field work that I've been doing for three years, uh, I always uh, saw it as a collective project and saw it as multivocal, multiperspectival, uh, and it's, it's gratifying to see that now beginning to take shape. Uh, the other thing I should say about the interviews, and I'm not going to do them justice, I'm really going to focus on the photography today, talking both about the historian and the eye, but... Uh, so I'm not going to do justice to the audio archive, but I just want to underscore what an important part of the project it is uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that it supplements the photos in, in really important ways. I mean, the, the photographs uh, capture you know, what's visible, most often what's visible publicly, um, which leaves out entire dimensions of the story that are really important. And so it's, it's only in the audio archive and the interviews where you hear people reflecting on certain things that aren't visible, that don't, won't show up on camera, uh, reflecting and analyzing. And there's a kind of vernacular theorizing that goes on in most of the interviews that, that I think is, is really interesting and valuable. Um, the other thing that, that happens in the interviews, as people narrate their lives, you start to, you, I anyway, have started to see the presence of history in a very different way. You know, when, when you have someone in the room, you are in the room with a lot of ghosts. And uh, some of that is what comes out in these interviews. One example, uh, an artist in Minneapolis named Setu Jones, I asked him to, to narrate, you know, just briefly, give me a short autobiography. And he started seven generations back with a, a slave who escaped and went upriver and ended up in Red Wing, Minnesota. And, and now Setu 
six or seven generations later, is, is growing up uh, in, in Minneapolis. Now he's, he's uh, my age or a little bit older. He's an accomplished artist and a political activist. But his story, for him, begins in slavery uh, a century and more, or two centuries ago, and is refracted through his memory of hearing about Emmett Till when he was seven years old. It's refracted through his experience with the Black Panthers when he spent summers in Chicago. It's refracted through his own experience of the Reagan years and the like. Uh, And just listening to a story like that and listening to to multiple stories like that gives you an understanding of the depth uh, and the presence of of history. So uh, you're not going to hear much of that today, but I just want to underscore what an important part of this archive, uh, the audio part is. Okay, now let me just um, dispense with the website and we'll just go to a more traditional uh, slideshow of images, which I'll just uh, sometimes speed up, sometimes slow down. Some of them I'm going to linger over. Some of them are just going to fly past you. Um, But my themes here uh, are a few. First of all, I'm going to talk about the, the context and talk about some of the photography I've done around just trying to capture this, uh, this economic moment that we're in because it frames so much else. I mean, it's important to remember that, that the bottom have fa- had fallen out of the economy before uh, Obama uh, took, took office, and it's, it's framed virtually every debate that, that has taken place while he's been in office. Uh, in doing that, I want to talk about, I said I'm going to talk about the historian and the eye. I'll talk a little bit analytically about some of the photographs, but I also want to talk about the aesthetic of documentary photography and what it means, because it's not a simple form. It's not a form that should be taken at face value. Uh, it's a form that I think uh, can express quite a lot, um, but we should be thoughtful about it. Then I'm going to talk uh, in kind of broad strokes about some, I'll speak as a historian, about uh, a couple of, or maybe as a sociologist, a couple of kind of public issues that we're, that we're facing and that we have been facing over the, couple, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, including the Obama presidency himself uh, and Obama as a figure. I'll talk about immigration. I'm going to talk about the anti-Muslim uh, kind of insurgence or resurgence uh, beginning last year. And then I'll talk briefly about the Occupy movement. Uh, and then finally, I'll close by just um, making some remarks uh, as a photographer, just looking at some of my favorite photographs and talking about what I think they do and how I think they do it. So there's a roadmap. The Better History Project took its name from that the Obama quotation that I read you a minute ago. Um, but it was really kind of inspired by this piece of graffiti in, in lower Manhattan. It doesn't exist anymore. That wall was torn down. Uh, but somebody had, this is graffiti. Somebody used a stencil, but, but uh, took Obama's phrase and stenciled it onto a wall in a way that uh, clearly had meaning of some sort to that person and became a, a kind of interesting public marker. Someone else came along later. I don't know how well you can see this, but, but uh, they used a, a lighter marker, but made better history read bitter future. And so that piece of graffiti upon graffiti actually captured exactly the duality of this historical moment that's been so, so striking to me and that's been uh, at the center of this project. Okay, so let us talk a little bit about the economic context within which 
uh, Obama took office and also within which this project uh, took off. These are just uh, various uh, takes, photographic takes on our economic moment. Here's a struggling businessman in Manhattan. That's Lexington, Kentucky. That's Gainesville, Florida. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. When I was taking this picture, someone on the sidewalk told me they had eaten at this diner the day before. And as you can see, not only is the furniture still in there, but uh, so are the dishes. This is Allentown, Pennsylvania. Now, one of the things to point out is there is an aesthetic here. There is an aesthetic to the website that's very important. It's important to what I'm doing, but it's important also to note it and to think about it and be critical of it and to maybe have your guard up against it. The most obvious thing is the choice to use black and white. Uh, it's a choice that people have criticized, especially um, social scientists and historians have said to me, you know, color is data. How can you limit data and, 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 and say that you're really after the truth of the moment in a, an important way? Uh, and I understand the critique. I understand... I mean, to me, either answer to the question is problematic because photography is inherently problematic. Um, but here is my thinking on the black and white question. The first is that uh, in, in a, the cultural landscape that we live in, um, we are bombarded by so many images. I think the average American sees more mediated images in a year, probably, probably, probably much shorter time than that, than Dorothea Lange probably saw in her entire life. You know, everywhere we turn... There are images. And so there's one of the ways that black and white uh, photographs function is they, re they announce that they're requesting a certain kind of attention. Whether or not that works is another question, but at least when you see something that's re rendered in black and white, uh, you know that it's, it's seeking your attention. It's asking you to look at it in a particular way. It's asking uh, not to get lost in, in the acreage of, of advertising copy, for example. The second piece of this for me, and it's actually much more important, is uh, a quote by Paul Strand. He said, even documentary photography should, be, uh, should pay a lot of uh, attention to the details of aesthetic, because uh, if a photograph isn't aesthetically interesting, it will exhaust itself uh, at a first glance, and it won't ever do the work that you're trying to do as a documentarian. So even if what you're trying to do is, is merely document something, whether it's a moment or an event or whatever it is, if you don't render the photograph worth looking at in, in other kind of realms of sensibility, your work is going to be lost. And I, I think there's something right about that as well. So that's, that's the, the kind of uh, dual thinking that's gone into the way uh, I've, I've um, taken and edited uh, the photographs, although the, the editing has been very light, I will say. I haven't done anything beyond cropping uh, and occasionally um, changing the lights and shades just to make sure that, that something uh, is, is visible that, that might otherwise get lost. But I haven't, I haven't had a very heavy hand in editing. Now, another aspect of it is not just uh, reading you know, the aesthetics and thinking about the aesthetics of, of, of uh, presentation here, 
But then, you know, reading analytically, whether it's as an economist, as a sociologist, as, as a historian, and I think that the photographs collectively um, are trying to do uh, a lot of work here. And I should say, I mean, one, of, one dimension, so I'm taking Paul, Str- Paul Strand's advice and, and uh, trying to get people to linger over a single image uh, from time to time. But there is something about the depth of the archive. I am posting 2,500 uh, 2, photographs for a reason. There's, there's a kind of cumulative effect that's important. And one of the stories that, that won't necessarily be told in a single photograph but is told in a group of photographs are the kind of multiple layers of distress that we're living in. So a couple of examples. This is from your neighborhood. This is from uh, the, the Route 1 corridor between about New Brunswick and Trenton. This is a factory um, closed down and for lease, um, de- denoting one layer of distress that goes back a ways. I don't know exactly the details of this factory, but I know that this sector of the economy has been in a long slide for several decades, and you can go all over the Northeast and find markers of that layer of distress that look more or less like this, and, and, and they're everywhere. On top of that layer of distress, if you think almost in, in kind of archaeological terms, then there's the, the kind of post-2008 layer of distress. There's the store closings and, and the, the business failures and the like, which is much more recent, a much more... It's a specific and different kind of layer of the economic picture, but it's an important part of the composite. And then finally, in a place like this, um, there's yet another layer, and that's the overbuilding the overbuilding that took place mostly in the, in the early aughts. So in addition to the factories that have been abandoned for you know, decades, in addition to the, the, the uh, storefronts that have been vacant for two years, um, there are the buildings that have never been uh, inhabited and may never be inhabited. You know, and, and you see different, every locality has its own kind of patterns of distress, but they're legible uh, in the landscape once you start um, looking at them this way. So here's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Again, this is a, a plant that has, uh, was slowed uh, to a point of, of kind of civic distress uh, for the township uh, more than two decades ago. It has been silent for 15 years. Uh, but then, again, as elsewhere, uh, on top of that kind of post-industrial layer of distress, you see the closed businesses here, a diner uh, here, a storefront and also the, the markers, uh, so numerous markers of uh, foreclosure and, and personal distress. This is the same phenomenon, a uh, very different kind of fault line. This is New Orleans, where again, businesses recently closed or closing, um, side by side with what is clearly kind of the post-Katrina or the, the Katrina vintage of Distress, And again, for those of you who, uh, this is a school promising to be open. Uh, the fall of Katrina still has not opened. For those of you who haven't been to, to New Orleans, there are, are parts, huge parts of the city that still look like this, that look like the flood was a month ago. So there's, uh, so... Why document all of this? One of the reasons is, you know, even optimists among us feel that we're, as a nation, at an economic turning point. What we're going to turn into remains to be seen, but even optimists are saying the jobs that left are not coming back. 
and that, that the, uh, if, if there's going to be recovery, it's going to look like something very different from, from the losses of recent years. And so one of the reasons I've taken so much time and care to document uh, this, this economic moment is because I am convinced that there's some truth in that, and I think that, uh, that there's something important to be, to be paused over and analyzed and understood uh, about what we're in the middle of. In addition to the landscape, the built environment, the, uh, the urban spaces, and the like, then there's also, in this archive, a lot of attention to... Uh, the various ways that people have given voice to their discontents, to their worries, to their anxieties. I'll be coming back to some of these these photographs later on. But the protest section of the archive uh, covers right, left, and center uh, a lot of different kinds of, of protest with a lot of uh, expressing a lot of different analyses of the moment. This is a war memorial in Boston in the North End made of, of military dog tags. This is a soapbox orator in Times Square. The thing you can't tell about this is that I'm about 10 feet from him and about 50, 50 yards from her. She's on a jumbotron about, uh, across the street and about 50 yards away. She's enormous. She's about uh, three stories tall, or at least two. Um, I'm going to talk about this photograph later on as well. Um, for the moment, I'll just say, if I, were, I don't title any of the photographs, but the, the title of this one, I think, would be Free Speech, um, because I think it, it kind of... It's a great metaphor for what we're up against when we try to express anything in this, in this culture of ours. Predating by a little bit the Tea Party, uh, obviously the, the discourse of debt has been with us in various forms for a very long time. Okay. That's, that's all preface. That's the context. That's the kind of economics of the moment, uh, the broad politics of the moment, and some of the, the scope of, of the project. Let me uh, talk for a moment about Obama. And one of the ways, of, I think, of thinking about his presidency is as a contest over what post means or might mean or will mean or should mean uh, when we talk about post-civil rights politics. One of the things that's striking to me when I go back to the materials that I gathered on Inauguration Day is how long ago it seems. Um, I think that you know, there was this sense on that day or those days or maybe for a period of months that, 
that something so momentous had happened, and, I, and we shouldn't lose that. Something momentous did happen. As a historian, I think one of the things, um, one of the challenges to us is to interpret those decades leading up to the Obama election. I feel like the, that when we elected Obama, we learned something about our country that there was not a way of knowing until that moment. I feel like Obama himself might have been the only person in 2007 who thought we might elect an African-American in 2008. Uh, and when you turn around and look at those decades, the, do- the topography of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early aughts looks different. And I think there's, there's an interpretive problem for historians to face. Uh, geologists talk about how underneath the river, the riverbed is moving. And I think in a sense, historiographically, the riverbed of American political culture was moving in ways that, that we weren't aware of and that, that still require explanation. Um, and I think it's a story that is partly a political story. It's a story that involves a generation of big city African-American na- uh, mayors. It's a story that involves um, political figures like Douglas Wilder and even ironically, I think, political figures like Condoleezza Rice. Um, there's, there's definitely a political story to be told there. I think it's largely a cultural story as well. I think it's a generational story. I think it's a story of minds changing over time. Uh, It's a story of certain ideas dying off with certain people. uh, And I think it's a story of the culture. I think it's a story that can't be told without uh, reference to people like Bill Cosby uh, or Chris Rock or Mariah Carey or or a number of other people. But I think that it's it's a deep cultural story uh, that there was was no way of of even attending to until Obama was elected. And and so I don't want to to minimize uh, or I don't want us to minimize what it means that we elected Barack Obama, um, despite this kind of era of, of, of dis- disappointment that we have moved into, or, or the kinds of comment that you, that you hear. At the same time, I like my coffee black, like my president. Uh, at the same time, the, the iconography around Obama, I think, is telling us about a certain hunger that is unfulfilled. I mean, we know that electing a black president does not, uh, does not absolve us of, of the racism of our society and our culture. We know that neither does it solve every uh, racialized problem there is. But I think that the, the um, ubiquitous iconography around Obama, this is a, a cardboard stand-up at, uh, in the Democratic Party uh, headquarters in Alachua County, Florida. Here's that rib joint I was talking about. The, the iconography, I think, bespeaks a kind of hunger to be able to tell a story about ourselves as a nation that we've never been able to tell or that we wish were so. Here's Barack Obama Boulevard in St. Louis. Barackalypse now. This is, the, uh, this is an iPhone application, the Yes We Cam you can take any picture and turn it into an Obama-themed hope poster. Goes well with the Obama mints, yes, we candy. El Barrio means hope. This is uh, East Harlem. This is 125th Street. Yes, we did. This image was hijacked, actually. This is a Chinese clothing company that that stole Obama's image to use on a billboard near Times Square. Uh, The White House found out about it and made them take it down, so it was up for about 24 hours. 
Paul Landry was one of the interviewees. He's a carpenter, still real, rebuilding his house in the Seventh Ward in, uh, in New Orleans. And what you see in this picture is pretty much all he has. That is a clock, a television, a, uh, a saint's flag, and a picture of him with Barack Obama and Martin Luther King. But I think that these, the iconography and the, the attention, the riveting upon Obama as, as a figure, um, I think there's a lot of ideological work taking place there. And I think that, I mean, there's no consensus. I, don't, I think that different people are using the image in different ways. They, they intend different things by it. But I think as, as a, a, a visible and kind of omnipresent icon in our, in our public culture, it's, it's saying something very important um, about the, the racial moment that we're in. You know, what has and what has not been accomplished. The questions that are still open, the story we can tell ourselves, the story we, we wish we could tell ourselves, the story that is maybe self-flattering. Here's an Obama chia, uh, those clay things that you grow hair out of, or like uh, moss. And then, of course, along with the positive iconography, there's been the negative. The impeach Obama, the hateful. Obama is a commie. Which brings us towards our next theme, which is immigration. We can't find Obama's U.S. birth certificate. So in, uh, I think that that race is very clearly an, an overt and, and kind of expressed part of the positive Obama imagery. Uh, race is usually erased from the negative imagery. You know, the fellow, the fellow with, the, the Obama, with the Obama mustache um, is not going to say to you that race has anything to do with his hatred of Obama. But what's, what has kind of snuck in uh, is the, the issue of citizenship itself. And so it's not said that an African-American cannot be the legitimate president of the United States or that an African-American must be a usurper. You know, and obviously there's, there's a, a deep enough history of white supremacism in, in uh, American political culture that, that there's a lot of weight to those ideas in some quarters. Uh, but that will be expressed much more rarely than the idea of, well, it's not that he's black, it's that he's not American. And I think that that has given a certain temper to the immigration debates in the last couple of years. Part of, I want my country back. That's a quote. We'll come to where that, that comes from in a minute. One of the few places hiring these days is the U.S. Border Patrol. But let's go back to Obama and his birth. The idea that he's not American, the idea that he's somehow snuck into the country, that he's an anchor baby of some sort, not only is symptomatic of the ways that race is, is playing into the anti-Obama argumentation, um, but it's also a symptom of the ways that, that the presence of Obama in the White House is is raising the stakes of, of the immigration question. And it's, it's given rise to a politics of white displacement that is expressed in a million different arenas in a million different ways. This is a diner, actually not so far from here. This is in Philadelphia. 
Uh, if you can read, thank a teacher. If you can read in English, thank a Marine. This is America when ordering speak English. I am mad as hell, and I want my country back. Now, I have to think that that I want my country back has as much to do with the election of Obama as it does with the, the uh, presumed kind of immigrant threat that is, is being discussed here. And if you were just to listen, if you were to eavesdrop on the society, there's no way that you would know that actually immigration rates have been on the decline, as they always are during recessions and depressions, that the, the crime rate along the U.S.-Mexico border is at a decade's low, uh, and that the Obama administration uh, has deported more immigrants than any other administration ever. You couldn't know that, but the, the politics of white displacement are such that, that those kinds of facts don't get in the way of, of the feeling of being white in Obama's America if you're a particular kind of white and if you're attached to a particular uh, notion of what whiteness means. You know, so the infrastructure of immigration law, borders control, has been building and has been increasingly militarized for decades. This is Nogales. Interestingly, border patrol check two miles. Now, this is heading away from the border. This is several miles into Arizona from the border. Um, so the, the band of, of area under the surveillance and control of the border patrol is, is, is really quite enormous. Here are those pro-immigrant coalitions I was talking about. This is New York a couple years ago. But the, as I was saying, the politics of white displacement are such uh, that they bleed into debates over things like immigration, even though the factual basis uh, for the discussion of immigration has shifted uh, quite seriously over the last uh, several years. And... Related... This is one of my favorites. This is in a shop window in San Antonio, Texas. I'll talk about this photograph in more detail in a minute, too. Uh, related to this, though, in this, this kind of politics of white displacement, is the politics surrounding um, Islam in America and, and the relationship between Islam and America. And again, as was the case with the kind of where's the birth certificate, uh, uh, Obama isn't really American, uh, the, the, the clues are such. This is a piece of hate mail received by the Center for uh, American-Islamic Relations. And at the very bottom, you can see the, the reference to Hussein Obama. Again, that's a clue that these things are merged. These things are, are very tightly connected the presence of the African-American president in the White House and the presumed threat of Muslims in America. Uh, the Center for, Islamic, uh, for American-Islamic Relations um, gets more hate mail than you can imagine. This folder, this is what came in electronically in one month, uh, but a lot of it comes through the mail as well. 
This one happens to be a little bit funny. This is a Bacon American flag. The, uh, the civil rights director for the Center for American-Islamic Relations is named Cyrus McGoldrick, and he laughed and kind of wryly said, uh, it's as though the people who hate us think that pork is our kryptonite. So a lot of the hate mail, I mean, they're just these very odd references to pork, including uh, uh, this American flag made of pork. But again, I mean, the, the, the reason uh, that I connect this to Obama is because, I mean, as, and Cyrus McColdrick and I discussed this at length in one of the, the interviews that you can take a look at, but that, that sure, after 9-11, uh, there, was, uh, there were plenty of hate crimes. There was no shortage of that. There was a, you know, a certain kind of vulnerability that, that uh, Muslim Americans uh, or Muslim immigrants felt. Uh, there was the racial profiling. There, there's no shortage of those kinds of things to point to. But in a general way, the, the kind of general temper of the, the, the culture around the issue of Islam stayed relatively calm compared to what it became uh, within the last year, that, that the hatred just kind of spiked uh, about a year and a half or two years ago. And I think that it's, it's very closely related to that um, Hussein Obama. That kind of reference, I think, is telling us something important. And, you know, there have been no shortage of people to fan the flames. This was uh, the day that uh, the, the Historic uh, Preservation Board rendered its decision on whether or not the Islamic Center could be built at 51 Park. And it was a media circus. I went there to document the event, but I ended up documenting the media because it was, it was the most important thing that was happening there. So they rendered their decision, which was the proper one. They said this building isn't historic. The, the, the Islamic Center can indeed be built. There's no reason. We're not going to. You can't put this on us. You know, from a historic point of view, it's a nothing building. And if they want it, they can have it. And they should do whatever they want with it. This, this is America, isn't it? There was a sigh of relief. There were hundreds of people in the room, and the general feeling was the correct decision. There were four people there who did not feel that way. Here is one of them. This mosque celebrates our murder. Here she is being interviewed. She was interviewed by virtually everyone. Here's another one of them. Islam builds mosques on the sites of conquest and victory. She was interviewed by everyone there. The woman clutching the book by Pamela Geller is Pamela Geller, most recently famous for saying that butterball turkeys are, are butchered according to Islamic law, and therefore good Americans should not buy butter, uh, butterball turkeys. That was last week. That's Pamela Geller. This is the Fox News building about an hour later announcing the decision. And this is Pamela Geller three weeks later leading, that's her on a jumbotron and on a stage, leading a huge anti-Muslim rally near the site of the proposed Park 51. And this, this was a tough event to cover. No radical victory mosque at Ground Zero. Everything I need to know about Islam I learned on 9-11. Salt in the wounds. Islam is intolerant. This gentleman seeming a poster boy for tolerance. Jesus is my savior, I will not submit. And here again is that sense of white displacement. The word submit, we're asking, you know, can, can a, a community center be built? And it becomes a question of victory for that, that one, that one uh, woman carrying the sign, or submission according to this sign. 
and the Trojan Horse Mosque at Ground Zero. Toilet paper of the Quran. And in some ways, this is the most amazing of all. Uh, Sharia Pelosi implant a tongue depressor, wire her jaw. And there was a kind of undercurrent of violence at this event that, that was palpable and quite frightening. Uh, the woman holding that sign is also wearing a T-shirt that says, Waterboarding Instructor. There were a handful of counter-demonstrators, I think very much to the point. This fellow is wearing uh, a a T-shirt that features the entire Obama family, and he's chanting, Obama, Obama. And he's he's facing these thousands of people with with their signs and their rage and their ranting, and and he's saying, you are just pissed off that we elected Obama, aren't you? Calling them out. And this couple as well. Hate is not an American value. Quickly, Occupy. And this, this I'm just kind of working out. I mean, there are many questions about Occupy. The Occupy movement is complicated. It's localized. It's very different from place to place. It raises a lot of vexing problems. And as someone pointed out, I mean, the word Occupy itself is problematic in ways that some occupiers seem to understand and some seem a little bit tone deaf to. It reminds me of my, my favorite bumper sticker from the 1980s when there was a lot of talk about get, get the U.S. out of Central America. My favorite bumper sticker was U.S. out of North America. So the word occupation has a lot of different meanings, and it's controversial. Um, I always assumed that they meant occupy in the sense that, you know, students in the 60s occupied administration buildings or workers in the 30s occupied factory buildings. But nonetheless, occupy does have a fraught history, and there's much to say about that. On the other hand, and I'm not, I'm not one of those progressives who thinks that somehow in the civil rights era and after, the politics of race, the politics of gender, the politics of sexuality displaced the, the true issue of class and economics. I don't think that at all. I mean, I think the lessons of the 60s and after are that, that no left worth its salt or worthy of the name uh, can proceed without a real attention to the ways in which race and gender and sexuality uh, are, are organizers of power. I mean, I don't think we can dispense with the insights or the analysis there. On the other hand, I do think that our, our public discussion has been profoundly anemic on questions of political economy and class and economics for a very long time, actually well predating the, the 60s. Um, and, and one of the things that the Occupy movement has done has been to clear some space for a new kind of conversation, and it's been quite dramatic. I mean, I think that if the Occupy movement uh, accomplishes not a single other thing from here, they've actually accomplished something quite momentous in shifting the public debate and giving voice to a certain kind of question and analysis and clearing out some room to have a certain kind of discussion. It's a varied movement. One of the things, this is one of my favorites. I don't know if you can see it. He's, he's, he's saying Soylent Green is people. Do you guys remember the science fiction movie? Uh, for those of you who are too young to remember it, a 70s science fiction movie where the government is feeding everyone this hideous stuff called Soylent Green, and it turns out it's actually made out of them. Um, but this kind of humor, I think, is very important. 
I mean, this is rye, and it's hilarious. I mean, the, the, the slogan is actually kind of strangely appropriate to our moment, for one thing. But also, the humor is important to the movement. There's something very sly about, about some of what's going on, and I don't think that's, that's merely theatrical. I mean, I think that that's an important part of the politics. But the thing that I've started to really wonder about, this is in uh, Occupy Baltimore, and here's Occupy Cleveland, the thing that I've started to wonder about is if this, too, is, is a byproduct of having a black president. If, if that an African-American uh, president occupying the, the Oval Office gives us a chance and clears out a space to talk about political economy as an issue in a new way. And I'm not, I'm not sure about this. I mean, I think that you can, you can you know, pile up the, the kind of ingredients that go into the emergence of a movement like, like Occupy. I mean, it, it, it has to do with, with the rapacious uh, stage of late capitalism that we're seeing. It has to do with Citizens United, decisions like that. It has to do with the way that, that money has so changed the political landscape. It has to do with the, uh, the economic collapse and the bailouts and the like. I mean, there, there are many things. It has to do with the, the BP oil spill. I think that, that the debates over, you know, who's going to end up being more powerful, the United States or, or British Petroleum, uh, kind of augured something like the Occupy movement uh, emerging. On the other hand, I, I have a hard time thinking that uh, it's not. I mean, since we're seeing the importance of race kind of indirectly uh, come out in so many different ways in public discourse uh, during the Obama years, uh, might it also be the case that that's, that's important to this, to this as well? Um, I raise that as a question to you, and I would love to hear your thoughts about it. Finally, let me just close by making a few very quick comments about a very few photographs. Here, I'm going to start with this one. This, this was a moment, this is in, in uh, 2009 at a, at a health insurance uh, or a health care rally. And it taught me something really important about documentary photography. That is how collaborative it is. You know, this is a document that that was created not by a photographer, but by a photographer kind of doing a dance with the subject. So he's at, he's at a demonstration kind of purposely making himself as photogenic as possible to get a certain message out. The dutiful photographer seeks the photogenic subject, but the minute I start to raise the camera, the photogenic subject makes himself even more photogenic. Not to say that there's anything put on about the image, but there is something performed about it. You know, and I think that the contrast between his face and hers, the way they kind of mimic the, the, the classical kind of tragic and comic masks, um, kind of underscores the performativity of the photographs. Now, now what that raises, the, so what kind, of, what kind of document is this then? What kind of text are we looking at when we're looking at a, doc, a documentary? Photograph. I believe that all of that performativity does not take away anything from the power of the document and its power to say something worth saying about the historical moment. I did have someone tell me when I was giving this talk somewhere else, they said, I can't learn a single thing from a photograph like this. I think it depends on your definition of the word learn. <laughs> I think that 
the photograph is saying something very important about a very particular moment in our public discussion. And I think that, for me, a documentary photograph that is performed in this way is no different from uh, a history text that's being careful and thoughtful and well footnoted, but is written in stylish prose. That's the analogy I'm working with. But I think it's a, it's a deep philosophical question, and I'm also I'm curious on, on your thoughts. I'll just I'll talk about two more. This one, this was taken at an anti-BP rally um, right in the middle of the oil spill in, in the summer of 2010. And the thing that's interesting to me about this, I think that this event and this person, in a way, at least as a kind of uh, standing for a certain political and social type, both things um, predicted uh, the Occupy movement. That is, I think the BP oil spill predicted the Occupy movement in the way that I mentioned a minute ago. I think that the showdown between the nation state and the corporation in the summer of 2010 was announcing something very important about the power dynamics of the moment, and it was bound to, to kind of bubble up in public discussion in, in a different way. It was bound to, whether it was the Occupy movement or something else. Um, but that moment about you know, the, the power of corporate power vis-a-vis the nation-state, vis-a-vis citizenship, vis-a-vis the rights of ordinary people, it came to such a point over the, the question of BP that it was just a matter of time. The other thing, though, this, she's the leader of this, this movement, and it was, a, it was a really kind of a ragtag little event. If, you, if I panned back, there weren't that many demonstrators, and they weren't really capturing the attention so much of a lot of the passers-by, or at least the passers-by were more confused by them. So it wasn't exactly a powerful moment uh, politically, although there's a kind of power to her that I think is really important. And I, I thought this at the time, and now um, in, with the hindsight of the Occupy movement, I think it even more so. It reminds me of, of Margaret Mead's uh, famous dictum that, you know, don't, don't doubt that a small group of dedicated people can change the world. Nothing else ever has. And I think that there's a sense in which this woman, who's a leader of this, this small anti-BP group, um, is kind of iconic of, of that group of 20-somethings who kind of figured out how to try to change the world. I don't know if she's occupying New Orleans, but if I had to put money on it, I would bet so. Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I think... One of the things that the documentary photograph seeks to do is not just document in specificity, but also document in generality. And I think that she is a kind of important generality. Let me end with this one, because the the site is supposed to be pedagogical. That's one of the hopes. And this is a photograph I've used in my own teaching. So as I said, here you have your soapbox orator. He's talking about... Uh, he's talking about healthcare, actually. And in the background, you have this giant jumbotron with this woman on a trampoline, kind of scantily dressed, and she's bouncing around. Um, the question I put to my students was, okay, you know there were times in American history where such, such a spectacle was not possible, right? When you look at this, you know that you're not looking at the 1930s, for example. You know you're not looking at the 1950s, even. Okay, you know that this is something that cannot take place in, in certain cultures in the world, historically or today. Right? There's a kind of specificity to it. So, you know, if Antonio Gramsci tells us that history deposits us in the world without an inventory, what would the inventory be for this? 
What are the preconditions? What are the things that have to be in place for this spectacle to be possible? And these students, they talked about the technology of the jumbotron. They talked about sexual politics. They talked about feminism and anti-feminism. They talked about urban space, the commercialization of public spaces. And they talked about a million things. And they talked for an hour. And I think that there was nothing that I could have told them that would have been as powerful a lesson for them. But just asking them to read the photograph in that particular way was very powerful. And so, I mean, I think that there are a lot of different ways to use this archive, and, and I'm eager to hear other people's thoughts about it. But I just wanted to end with that one, because the whole point of this project is to be useful, you know, not only to invite contributions, but to have, to have people find it useful in their own thinking, in their own teaching, in their own studying. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure and end on this point. And I will end right there, and I'm really eager to hear uh, whatever questions you have on, on any dimension of this project. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for that. That's great. I mean, I, there are a couple of things. There's a sign. I, I would take you back to the website and try to find it, but I don't think I can. But it's under, uh, it's under the signage uh, gallery. It's a sign outside of a, a church in Lower Manhattan, and, and it says um, something like, you know, the government wants you to be afraid and angry or something like that. Don't be. And it's very interesting. Or, or afraid and hateful, I think, something like that. Um, and there are a couple of, of religious figures who are interviewed. Um, uh, Daisy Kahn, who I mentioned, uh, Rabbi um, Paul Rauschenbusch, or, um, who I think many of you probably know. Um, so there is, I mean, there is that kind of, uh, and a cantor as well, um, Leslie Carson, Dina Cola. So the, the, as a thematic thread, religion is very much there. But I love your idea of photographing the churches, especially the inner city churches, because that had never occurred to me, and that's, uh, that's a really important, important source. Mm-hmm, in the back. Well, I have tenure. <laughs> um, 
Actually, I think of this as truly an extension of my historical writing. I mean, one of the things that people have asked me is, what's the difference between what I'm doing and photojournalism? And I think there is a difference. I don't know that it's, it's, it's um, legible to the naked eye, but it, I see a real difference. And one of the things I would say is that my decision, is the best example, but I think I could think of many others. My decision to go downtown on the day of that anti-Muslim rally was a decision that came from exactly the space in my brain that my book, Whiteness of a Different Color, came from. It was this, an idea that I don't know what's going to happen there, and I'm not going there like an ambulance chaser because I think it's going to be a spectacle. I think that whatever happens there, whatever Pamela Geller is mounting, is something that runs really deep in American political culture. And it's going to have a lot to do with white primacy. It's going to have a lot to do with the kind of a politics of white resentment. It's going to have a lot to do with the kind of, of you know, at best, um, Judeo-Christian kind of supremacism, but probably just Christian supremacism. Uh, and all of these things are, are historically important and have been, and therefore I'm going to go there and document it. And, and I think that regardless, I mean, this, this Pamela Geller could come and go. She could disappear. Um, the politics of anti-Muslim sentiment could simmer down. Everything could be rosy. But I think that I can guarantee you that it's, it will pop up again because I think that it runs deep. And so the decisions that I've made, where I've tried to be at given times, the decisions I've made about what to try to record um, are decisions that, that truly come out of my um, sensibility as a historian. Um, and I think that when I'm at my best, that that's working. The, the political part of it, I mean, I think that there's nothing, this is neither more nor less political than any of the, the historiographic writing that I've done. I think it's political in the same way. I think it comes, I see, well, it's like Howard Zinn said, you can't, you can't stand still on a moving train. I mean, I see, I see scholarship as, as a moral venture as, as much as an intellectual one, and you have to keep your bearings and you have to decide what's important. But this notion of being objective, um, I think, is nonsense. And I've written, I've written my books that way, and I'm, I'm carrying out this project that way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is a late entry in a, in a, very, a genre that's been you know, popular for a very long time. My point with them was simply, I mean, especially the woman on the trampoline, um, which, I mean, I, this is actually part of a series. I have six of these, and if you flash through them very quickly, you can see her trajectory. Um, you know, but it's, it's borderline pornographic, and it's, and it's two stories tall, and it's in the, in the, the heart of New York City. Uh, that was the thing that I was getting them to think about. And just to, and to unpack that. You know, not only what does it mean, but how did we get there? Like, what are the things that have to take place before you end up with a half-pornographic, two-story picture in motion, in color, uh, in, in the heart of New York City? What's that?
I, I have been very sensitive to that um, for a number of reasons. Because, well, first of all, I agree with you. I mean, these are, these are complex issues, and I, and I don't mean to, to um, paint. I mean, there, there are many people who had many different kinds of qualms with the, with the, the Islamic Center project. And I, I don't think that it does anybody any good to, to lump them completely together. The only reason I, I felt comfortable making that comment is that I heard some of the things that he was saying to me. Anti-Semitic things. You know, this was a really ugly crowd. And they knew who was them and who was not. And a lot of them picked me out as someone who wasn't them and were very free with their speech about who I was. So I, I have no problem saying that he's an intolerant person, but it's not based just on the photograph. It's based on, on, my, on, my, on my interaction with that. And yeah, that was an offhand comment that, I, that was probably out of bounds anyway. I probably shouldn't have said it. Um, but this, you know, this was an amazing event. It was, it was one of the hardest places I've ever been because the, the hatred was so enormous. It was really kind of unbelievable. And... You know, just as with the case of this gentleman, a lot of those photographs that I took at the anti-Muslim rally were also collaborations. They were people putting themselves on display to say a certain hateful thing, either to or for a photographer. And so they were collaborations as well. And, and there is something performative about those photographs as well. It's just a different thing that's being performed. Mm -hmm. Over on, on the side there? Yes. Well, one of the things um, that has struck me, and I've... I've I visited the Occupy movement. I live in New York, so I've, I've been to Zuccotti Park a couple of times, and, I, and the, some of the photographs that you saw were from two of their really early, huge rallies, both in early October. I've been to Occupy Baltimore, I've been to Occupy New Haven, and I've been to Occupy Cleveland. They all have a very different tone. There's something very different happening at each, at each place. A lot of it has to do with just the local configuration, who comes out. A lot of it has to do with whatever kind of relationship they've been able to strike with, with the establishment, right, in general, but especially the police. Um, so, you know, how much, how, how much are they outlaws kind of matters to the, the general configuration on the ground. Um, but one of the things that has struck me, you know, starting out for, for weeks, I mean, it took a long time for the press to notice the Occupy movement, for one thing. The mainstream press really wasn't reporting on this for at least the first three weeks. And once they did start reporting on it, the thing they said, and, and some still are saying, 
oh, these people don't have a message, it's too vague, it's illegible, what do they want, what are their demands, they can't go anywhere because they don't have demands or whatever. The thing that struck me about it was that, and this is the case with all of the ones that I've been to, is that the closer you get to it, the better it looks. That the closer you get to it, the, the more serious you understand that it is. I mean, it's serious. These folks have not just an agenda, but a really sophisticated and ambitious political project that's based not only on kind of democratic practice. So it's not just a critique. You know, it's not just mounting a certain kind of anti-corporatist critique of the moment that we're in and working that out and hammering out ideas, really serious ideas. That's part of it. But it's also enacting in microcosm a society that is an alternative, it's, that runs on alternative values to the society that they see around them. It's very hard to pick that up just reading news accounts of them, but when you go, and, and you don't even have to live among them or anything, but just, just kind of go to the park and observe, you, you start to get that. So one of the things that I noticed, though, about that, and here's where, you know, the, the picture, um, the placard that said, I like my coffee black, like my president, that was taken at that event on the Washington Mall last year that um, Stephen Colbert and um, John, what's his name, John... Don Stewart, um, ran. Now, one of the things that's interesting, that event felt completely political to me. And it was jarring to hear Stewart kind of back away from that and say, no, it's not political, it's just a gag, it's just entertainment, whatever, we're comedians. You know, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of people there, and at least hundreds of thousands of them, a couple hundred thousand of them, felt like it was a serious political moment. And you could feel that in the air. Now, the signage was kind of hilarious. I mean, my favorite there was the woman who had the big sign that said, Separate the, or, uh, support the separation of head from ass. <laughs> so humor was an, an enormous part of it, but it wasn't apolitical humor at all. You know, I think that, that occupying that space was saying something really important, and I think that a lot of the people who participated felt that that's what they were doing, was saying something really important. And I think that you can see that carrying over into the Occupy movement. I think that some of the signage that you see in Occupy comes straight out of that event, and it comes straight out of the sensibility of that event. And it's a sensibility that I think goes along with the kind of alternative social vision that the Occupy movement is all about. It's... It's serious and it's joyous. It's critical and it's satirical. You know, it's embittered and it's full of life. I mean, there are all these different things about it, but I think that you can't, it's, it's, you can't pull the thread of humor out of it and dispense with it as something that's not integral to the politics, because I, I think it is. Does that clarify what I was... Yeah. Yeah, no, I've thought about it a lot, and it's a completely open question to me. There have been times that I thought, this is a project that is really probably just about the Obama years, whether that turns out to be four or eight. There are other times when I thought, you know what, this is probably just a project that's about the kind of tailspin of the American century, and I'll probably be doing it the rest of my life. 
you know, and that, and that, you know, I've, I've kind of made myself into America's gibbon, you know, and I don't know. I mean, it could go, it could go either way. I do feel that it will make sense to me. There will be a moment where I'll understand, you know, that I've arrived someplace where that, you know, it's time to, like, put the last punctuation mark on it and, and call it something different. Although the architecture of the site is such that everything that's on it could fold into one little gallery and I could start a new project, right? And, and I, have had, I have had that thought as well. I just don't know exactly when, when this project comes to an end. But I'm, I don't know, I guess I'm just being alert to, to what the sources are telling me about when this project has come to, to a conclusion. Mm-hmm, Jerry? Right. So there's this layering. Um, so I wonder how you deal with that tension of the kind of layering of the past at the same time as something new is going on. Yeah. It's, um, there's a great interview with Alicia Schmidt Camacho on the website that, that really speaks to that. I mean, because she has such a deep knowledge of the long history of this debate. Um, that's, but that's the kind of thing that's, that's easier to get at in the audio part of the archive than it is with just the images. And, and that's one of the real limi- limitations of the photography itself, is that there's a certain level of analysis that you can evoke with photography, but there's a, a, a kind of a very slim little slice of analysis that you can actually convey in a photograph. And it's harder to address something like that. I mean, someone, I, I can't remember who it was, but pointed out similarly with, with some of the Tea Party stuff that, um, that if you look at the images of a Tea Party, you can't really tell that it's an astroturf movement with huge corporations about it. The camera won't capture that. So you, so you have to have the interview material do that. So that's, that's part of the rationale for the audio archive. But this is another good example of that. I think it's limited. In terms of, you know, as a historian thinking about it, I think that I mean, I would say that I've actually learned something about the layering of history from doing this work that I never knew as a historian, you know, and that, and that thinking about the immigration debates as layered rather than as cyclical and recurring is actually a very different way of thinking about it, and I think analytically it's a really rich way of thinking about it, so that there's this sedimented layer from the Pete Wilson era that has been down there, submerged, and it kind of bubbles up in a new form in the Obama era, and the two are closely related, but they they're kind of come out of two distinct moments, and they coexist in a in a weird kind of way. Mm-hmm.
Right. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I, I'm not sure I have an answer, but I will say, I mean, people have told me when they saw the structure of the site, they said, oh, my God, you've totally surrendered. You've given up, you've given up linearity altogether. In a sense, I mean, in the site, I don't know if you could really get this from, but when it was up there. So you have your galleries across the bottom. And if you go into one, say you go into Obama, you click it, and then you get another gallery, and it has like maybe 16 photographs that you can that show. But then you can scroll down, and there are hundreds. But then, but once you've done that, over on the right-hand side, all of the categories pop up over here, so that you still have access to virtually every spot within the site, no matter where you are. Every every other part of the site is is one click away, and so the idea behind that was to to make it navigable in terms that are, are thematic but not, not linear. So you could see a photograph from Washington, D.C., and it could get you interested in Washington, D.C., and you could click on places, and you go to D.C., and you could look at the gallery, and then you'd find out that you know, such and such happened, and you're oh, like, oh, yeah, I, re- I remember that there was an interview that had to do with, and then you go there. You know? And so you can kind of follow your nose. Um, I guess I'm taking the leap of faith that, that the people who spend time with it will kind of find ways of making meaning out of it. Um, so that's one answer, that it is a kind of surrender to the very thing that you seem uncertain about. The other thing I would say about that, though, is that even as a writer, you know, once I kind of sidestepped into the genre of cultural history as a form, I started out as an immigration historian and realized somewhere along the way that I couldn't answer my political questions without recourse to culture or cultural forms. I wanted, to, I wanted to understand immigrant nationalisms and realized I have to understand immigrant theater, immigrant religion, because that's where it was expressed, you know, or in poetry or whatever. Not just, you know, in Clan Nagale meetings, but, but in poetry, right? So I, I kind of became a cultural historian along the way. But once I became a cultural historian and understood that that's what I had become, I stopped thinking in linear terms because you can't, I mean, you know, you do have to narrate along a linear line, but you don't have to analyze in a linear way. And in fact, you can't if you're dealing with something as kind of fog-like as culture. So I think that I might have already been predisposed to kind of ditch linearity by the time I came to this project. I mean, I think I might have ditched it long ago. Mm-hmm.
resulted in a nationwide student strike. It closed, we closed down all the law schools. We, closed, we saw the closure of colleges and high schools. We go back even, you know, and then there was the song, Ohio, which was also became a bit of an anthem. But you go back further, and you can see the role of photography and the arts in the Palm War Front Movement in trying to organize people. And I guess the problem, and you can go all the way back to the to the Russian Revolution, the role of photography, the role of film. Um, you can go to the Mexican Revolution, the role of photography. All of those for the purpose of leading to action, not just simply attention to the image, although there was an incredible aesthetic that was involved, but also going leading to action. And I guess the problem that I have with some of your discussion today is the problem that I have with the Occupy Wall Street movement and the whole idea of generating movements through social networking or through the internet, what you see as, as winning. And the problem I have is that historically I feel that those debates about what it means to have a spontaneous movement, I mean, you can go back to the very earliest days of the labor movement or the international labor movement, you know, the, the writings of Joseph Luxembourg, you have the writings of Lenin and Trotsky, others about a spontaneous movement that is simply one that the powers to be digest and nothing really changes. So you have a situation right now in Egypt where the question is, is whether the quote Arab Spring started out by network social networking has in fact changed the power structure at all. The military is still in power, Mubarak's gone, but the same people are back. That they're going to announce the former Mubarak And so the, the question that I really have is is there something that you're trying to accomplish other than having people being able to read and pay attention to your material that leads to some sort of action, or is it just the documenting of a particular, particular cultural movement? And the reason I raise that is that you can go back to photographs in March of, of 03 in which several million Americans protested against the impending war, and it had no consequence whatsoever. And Occupy Wall Street, I fear, because of what I believe is a necessary to develop a hierarchy of leadership, will just, as we saw it play out in Israel with their social Hmm. It's nice to look at these photographs, and that's an impressive photograph. Uh, but no one's going to stand up and say, I've changed my opinion on this. Well, you know, I guess, let me say two things, or maybe three, or maybe four. Um, as a historian, I take a very long view, for one thing. So, like, I don't, I, it's not my interest at all for someone to sit down at the computer, see one of my photographs, and run out and join Occupy or anything, right? Some people might do that, and I'm certainly not against it. And what the intent is more is pedagogical. 
it's, which can also lead to action. And it, might, be, it might, might not be direct and it might not be fast. But you know, looking at the thousands of photographs of closed businesses might make someone do two things. It might kind of give them a different sense of the scale of the, the crisis that we're facing and, or, or kind of make it concrete in a way that they hadn't thought of before. It might also lead them to notice things about their hometown that they never noticed before and think about them in a different way. Both of those things, to me, are things worth doing, and, and that's part of what the archive is about. It's not, it's, it's not just to lead to political action, but it's to lead to reflection that can be politically usable and useful. Um, that's, I guess, just me as an educator. The other thing is me as a historian thinking, you know, the images are not just meant for today. You know, you can, you can go on the web and see the shot of the, the pepper spray in UC Davis and get all the rage you need to go out in the streets and do something, right? Photojournalists can do that work. This is in part about, you know, encouraging reflection on the current moment, but it's also in part about creating an archive that can be looked back on for analysis, um, whether that's in one year, 10 years, 50 years, whatever. Um, it's, it's meant as a historical artifact itself. It just happens, it's almost like a time capsule. You know, it's an artifact of now for kind of future pondering. Um, so I'm, I'm, I hope that it's usable in, in the ways that, that you and I might agree would be great politically. Um, but that's not my sole intent, and I think I'm working on a, a different time frame than the one that, that you might be um, implying. Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing. Thank you all.